I'm John Banther, and this is Classical Breakdown. From Classical WETA in Washington, we take you behind the music. In this episode, I'm joined by Classical WETA's James Jacobs to talk about one of Bernstein's masterpieces, West Side Story, which gets its movie remake this month. We peel back the musical layers to give you a better understanding of the music, why it was so complicated to premiere, and how Bernstein was able to write the score using his decades of knowledge on opera and symphonic music. And a quick note before we get started, Stephen Sondheim died on November 25th at the age of 91, after we recorded this podcast. He was one of the most influential lyricists of the 20th century, which all started when he wrote the lyrics for West Side Story. Bernstein's 1957 work, West Side Story, is such a fascinating work. As musicians, we've played excerpts and suites and the musical itself hundreds of times in in several countries, and every time without fail, it's always a crowd favorite. And it occupies an interesting place in music, doesn't it? Because it's a musical, but there are so many crossover elements with orchestra and opera. It feels so normal to see a bit of West Side Story in a concert with an orchestra right next to a concerto on the same program. You don't really see that with other musicals. No, you absolutely do not. And it's interesting, you know, in the 60 plus years since that musical, you hear other pieces, even supposedly serious concert works, and you hear, oh, that guy listened to West Side Story when he was a kid. And, you know, and and it's interesting because you listen to West Side Story and you hear what Bernstein listened to, but then West Side Story itself became such um, an iconic work. And it's interesting because Bernstein said at one point during uh, the preparation of this work that he thought it could change the face of musical theater. And what happened instead is that it became, it's such, I guess, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right, sui generis. It's such a work of its own that nobody really could follow up on it. I mean, people sort of tried, but it's really its own thing. And it kind of, and instead of uh, really sort of building on West Side Story, musical theater just sort of went in other directions, trying to find their own way in which to revitalize it. But West Side Story still, after 60 years, is um, explosive and fresh and and original, even when it's unoriginal, if that makes sense. It does. And a lot of listeners not might not think about West Side Story in this way, but it has a lot in common with opera. There's um, similarities with it. Bernstein answering a question about is something a musical or an operetta. This was about a different work. His answer is kind of funny, but it is kind of true. He just said, you just know. You just know when one is something or the other. For instance, uh, I read a great piece. We're talking about Maria and Somewhere. Those songs, Mm -hmm. beautiful. Really my favorite moments. That's opera. Officer Krupke, I Feel Pretty. Those, I mean, it seems pretty easy to call those. Well, those are really suited to a musical. Well, actually, what's interesting about Officer Krupke is that that actually stems from the Yiddish theater tradition of talking about um, how hard it is to be an immigrant and all the hypocrisies of coming to the supposed land of, of gold, where the streets are paid with gold, but then the realities of America. And, of course, you also hear that in the song America, though. Uh, but, but in Officer Krupke, what's interesting is that it's almost even the melody, which actually... Bernstein repurposed from something else. He was originally written for Candide, and uh, but but it really it's a it's a direct descendant of of Yiddish theater. So it's uh, even though 
like many musical theaters, it's been pointed out before, even though it's supposedly about Puerto Ricans and, and, and Poles, so much of it is, is from the Jewish tradition. That's particularly uh, evident in, in what they call the 11 o'clock number, which is what uh, Officer Krupke is. And by the way, Bernstein himself wrote the lyrics to Officer Krupke. Okay. That's, um, that's amazing. Yeah, it's not. Originally, actually, when the um, musical started out, actually, uh, in, in D.C., actually, uh, before it went to New York, the lyrics were credited, co-credited to Bernstein and Sondheim. And, uh, and then Bernstein rather generously decided to cede it all to uh, Sondheim because he was an up-and-comer and, -comer and uh, trying to give him more credit and also because none of the reviewers mentioned him. And also with an opera, when you think of musicals, Typically, especially in this time period, they're more upbeat, more positive, a fun ending. I mean, spoiler alert, there's going to be spoilers here. I think we've had the embargoes over on that. People die in this. So there's so many popular moments in this, like Tonight, Maria, America, Somewhere, the list goes on. We're not going to go through every song or movement or really detail you know, in the plot. Rather, we want to peel back some of the musical layers to help give you a better understanding and appreciation the next time you see this, which just might be in a few weeks next month with Spielberg's big remake. Yeah, I'm very much looking forward to that. And uh, it will be very interesting to see how that works. Uh, you know, Spielberg hasn't done a musical before and the book is by Tony Kushner. So did Angels in America. So it's going to be interesting. From what I've read, they are going to, so the 1957 musical, then we know the, the movie that came out a few years later in 61. It had to have some edits and changes to make it suitable for film at the time in, in the culture of the uh, 1960s. But what I've read for the remake, they're going to stick more closely with the original um, uh, musical, which is going to be interesting to see some of the differences. Now, the original story that Bernstein had in mind was quite different, and we'll touch on that. But the story that Bernstein is actually drawing from is centuries old, over 500 years old, right? Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. Right. And uh, it should be remembered that Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, uh, and Juliet is itself an adaptation. Uh, there was a, a novel by Luigi de Porto from 1530 uh, that was the source for all of the settings of Romeo and Juliet. Well, it's a story really as old as the hills, you know, to two households both alike in dignity, uh, you know, in Fair Verona. Um, you know, the the feuding, the the illicit love, the class differences, implied racial differences even in Shakespeare. And by the way, he actually started working on it during the plague, uh, the pandemic that closed the, uh, the London theaters. And there was references to the plague in the story. It's actually a, a, a plot point when um, Friar John can't get the note to Romeo, which is why Romeo thinks Juliet is dead. And, and So it's all, it comes full circle. It comes full circle. To 2021. And... Drawing from that, the initial idea for Bernstein and his team was a bit different than the West Side Story that we know today. Almost like a cliche, kind of funnily, it was East Side Story. Yes, it was about the... Uh in the 50s, in the early 50s, there were clashes between Catholics and Jews on, on New York's Upper East Side around uh, Passover time. But of course, this took a while to happen. And by the late 50s, that was no longer really so much of an issue. But what was an issue very much, and really what rekindled the collaborators' interest in this work, was news uh, from both L.A. and New York about clashes between Puerto Rican immigrants and and American kids and and realizing that there is a Romeo and Juliet story there. 
and that they would just have to draw upon, you know, Puerto Rican musical vocabulary. And that was, um, and so, and Bernstein, as it happened, had already had an interest in music from south of the border, and uh, and his wife was Chilean, and 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 he spoke Spanish fluently. So he, this was something that he took to uh, very well, and actually excited him more. So let's jump into the music now. In music, particularly in opera, we have something called a light motif. You can think of this as something like a short musical phrase, musical idea that's associated with a particular character, place emotion or idea. A great modern example is Star Wars, which uses leitmotif all over the place to represent all kinds of things, famously like Princess Leia. We see the same here in West Side Story. Just listen to the opening interval in the prologue. That is pretty dissonant, and it's an interval we call a tritone, an interval of three whole steps, and it's an interval Most composers avoided in centuries past. By the 1800s, it was used freely. It was just a little too dissonant, it seems, for composers long, long ago. That's a long story. But by the 1800s, it's used more freely, but not really in melodic or leading lines. It was more often still considered too dissonant for a lot of audiences, but you'd find it in harmony. We hear the tritone all over this work, and as a leitmotif, it can represent violence, the threat of violence, or just reality, which for the characters is inherently violent. And Bernstein presents this leitmotif tritone in several ways. For instance, in the prologue, like we just heard, and in the following Jets song, the tritone comes at the end of the Jets theme. You're never alone. You're never disconnected. You're home with your own. And in these cases, the tritone does not resolve to a more stable note. It's just left hanging and it's uncomfortable. We can think of this as representing their environment, which is inherently violent or the violence of the gang itself. So then the question is, why would Bernstein then famously include the tritone, this dissonant interval, in one of the most beautiful, and for me, my favorite moment, really, uh, the song Maria? The first thing is that Bernstein uses the interval in a way that's that does sound less dissonant, but the tritone is here, as Tony himself isn't unfamiliar with violence himself, having you know been the former member of the Jets. But importantly, the tritone that we hear again and again in Maria resolves. So what does this mean? Instead of hanging out in the open, it moves to another more stable and pleasing note. Maybe this is Bernstein showing us that. Tony has found a way to resolve his violent past, or maybe he sees a way forward of, of peace between these, these two factions. Because we do find it everywhere, and it also, therefore, I think, says something when it's notably absent, like in One Hand, One Heart, where Tony and Maria, they're having this make-believe wedding, which is basically detached from reality. It's their fantasy, a place where these things that we've chosen to divide ourselves by no longer exist. But if you look closely at the harmony, it starts in G-flat and it ends in C. Now, James, what's the interval between G-flat and C? It's a tritone. So even their fantasy in one hand, one heart is built upon this reality that the tritone represents going from G-flat to C. Now, this isn't something I think that Bernstein ever meant for you to sitting in the audience to hear, you know, this started in G flat, now it ends in C. What does that mean exactly for for this point? 
You talked about the very beginning where you hear that tried. One thing that's common to many of Bernstein's works is what is called the shofar call, which is something that um, Jews do uh, for the Rosh Hashanah, the, the new year they blow into the shofar. You actually hear the tritone is actually kind of what naturally comes out of the ram's horn as you blow into it. And so many of Bernstein's works, like the beginning of the Candide Overture is probably the most famous example, as well as the beginning of West Side Story, this sort of blast. And it's interesting that here he he leans into the dissonance. He leans into the instability and to its primal nature, evoking, you know, primal conflicts, which, of course, uh, is what West Side Story is all about. In a tritone, it's one of the more recognizable intervals. There's others that are much more subtle. And one more point on this tritone, it takes us all the way to the end when the musical ends and Tony's body is being carried off together by the jets and the sharks. The music ends soft. It's in C major. But down in the bottom in the lower instruments, they play in F sharp twice. These are quarter notes. So they're not dominating the texture. It's just we have the C major chord and then underneath this little pulse of an F sharp. But then on the final chord, the F sharp is is absent. Maybe this is Bernstein telling us that the newfound peace between the gangs is here to stay, but this ending was also changed later on by Bernstein, adding one more low F sharp in what would have been that peaceful C major final chord. I won't get into detail what I think about that, I think that's something we can all experience as we watch it again. So think about the implications of adding that third F sharp and what that might mean, what Bernstein might be saying or not. Because I know when I watch that remake, I'm going to be listening to the end to see which one they use. Is it going to be the one with the extra F sharp or the one without it? So we'll see. I am also very much looking forward to seeing how they uh, treat that ending, which is so ambiguous in its message and it's something that Bernstein borrowed from the ending of Richard Strauss's tone poem Also Sprach Zarathustra which had in that tone poem had cosmic implications uh, for the fate of humanity and Bernstein in so many ways throughout this work definitely meant West Side Story to be uh, something of a parable for humanity as a whole a work like Somewhere, for example, uh, which is a, a plea for peace at a time that we were in the height of the Cold War back in 1957 and and different peoples getting along. So that, that idea of conflict being resolved and having that hope in our young people is uh, something that Bernstein took very, very seriously and not just as something that might sell tickets to a Broadway show. Now, as we're talking about this, it might sound like well, this sounds pretty complicated, and we're just scratching the surface. West Side Story is extremely complicated. There's so much going on in here. I want to read a quote for you, James, of what Bernstein said about just getting this this off the ground, and maybe you can touch on just how big of an issue or how big of a, an obstacle it was just to get this on stage. Bernstein said, Everyone told us that it was an impossible project, and we were told no one was going to be able to sing augmented fourths, that tritone, as with Maria. Also, they said the score was too rangy for pop music. Besides, who wanted to see a show in which the first act curtain comes down on two dead bodies 
lying on the stage. And he goes on to talk about all the problems with casting. How complicated was this? Oh, it was extremely complicated because, uh, but Bernstein, this is something that Bernstein always did is he always expected so much more than other people did from from Broadway orchestras, from Broadway uh, performers. And he knew that they could that they could push themselves and give more. And he, he was confident that he could find the cast, even though he knew it was going to be a, a huge challenge. But yeah, it was the, the obstacles were, were many. And, um, and of course this wasn't just Bernstein working in a vacuum. It was Bernstein working with three other, you know, hard-headed uh, uh, people who had their own opinions about how it should go. And unlike most collaborations, they all sort of got in each other's faces and, and, and took it upon themselves to say, no, Lenny, you can't do that there. And, and Lenny saying, no, Arthur, you can't do that there. And, you know, they, uh, they, 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 everything was, they were all in each other's business. But of course, no one was more so than Jerome Robbins and Bernstein is the choreographer, the choreographer and conceiver of this piece. And, Bernstein is on record as saying that he said Jerry Robbins is the only person who scares me. Um, <laughs> if you scare Bernstein, and if you scare Bernstein, but yeah, but there's apparently there are moments where Bernstein was at the piano playing, and and uh, Jerry Robbins was behind him with his hands on his shoulders, going pa pa pa, you know, just like you know, sort of encouraging him more. And yeah, apparently it was uh, it was it's hard to work like that. It's hard to work like that, and so and also it's interesting too because. Bernstein didn't need to do this. He was the premiere of, um, I think it was like the same day that West Side Story went up in D.C., he signed his contract to be conductor of the New York Philharmonic. I mean, he was about to go in a completely different direction. And uh, so this all came really a few years later than Bernstein's career comfortably um, accommodated. And in fact, after West Side Story, he didn't write another piece for six years. So he was fully committed to the conducting path. But only after he did what paradoxically became perhaps the thing that he was most famous for, which is as a composer of the West Side Story. And I imagine it was difficult to stage on Broadway. Well, thinking, I'm thinking about the movie. They cast basically unknown actors for that. Was it similar for the for the Broadway production or were they choosing already big stars? Oh, no, there were no big stars. Um, there are people who later became big stars, perhaps most notably Cheetah Rivera, who was the original Anita on Broadway, and then Rita Moreno, who's the original Anita in the movie, and they both became huge. The most difficult role by far is Tony. I mean, the idea that you you need to have somebody who's believably young, charismatic because that's Broadway for you. You know, he's supposed to be Romeo, literally. I mean, that's, but also tough. For that matter, it's also very hard to cast Romeo when you're doing Romeo and Juliet. And it's because he needs to be young. He needs to be vulnerable. He needs to be tough enough to be a believable fighter who's capable of killing, you know, the biggest guy on the other in the other gang. And uh, he needs to be attractive enough so that you, that this, that this girl is going to risk her life to be with him. And in technical terms, uh, he needs to have a high G, <laughs> which is uh, a very high is, note to sing. He it's has a to very have. high note, you know, like an operatic tenor. I mean, he has to be basically be, you know, have the pipes, have the range and stamina of an operatic tenor without sounding like an opera singer, you know, and having perfect diction, which most operatic tenors do not have, you know, because you have to, but you have to be able to hear every word and, and act it and not over sing it. It make them cannonballing down through the sky, gleaming its eye bright as a rose. But the rhythm is so tricky and has to be so precise and 
and all the other roles have have uh, have challenges that are similar too. Oh, oh, yeah, and dancing too. <laughs> On top of that, and dancing Jerome Robbins choreography, which is which is not just about moving well; it's about really dancing. So, yeah, the the demands are. Absolutely extraordinary. As you mentioned, it's also demanding on the audience. It's also demanding on the expectations that people had sort of like, oh, let's go see a Broadway show. Uh, won't that be fun? You know, and remember that this came out the same year as The Music Man, which was the second biggest. Well, actually, that was the biggest show on Broadway. It was West Side Story that was second. It was, And it was The Music Man that won the Tony for Best Musical over West Side Story, which now seems sort of incredible. Um, yeah. uh, you know, Music Man is great, but... Come on. <laughs> so <laughs> really. But the thing is the the music is when we play it today, we've heard it a million times. We've we've played it a million times. It's still very difficult today. There's especially very difficult parts in in the trumpet. I mean, they have to be able to play very high and and um uh, very difficult, very loud, very powerful for basically the whole show. I've conducted this show. I conducted the show when I was in my early 20s. And, uh, and yeah, we, we did, I did manage to get, even on my limited budget, a really good trumpet player. But, yeah, it was, but, you know, he was, he was suffering. I want to jump into another big leitmotif that we can think about and, and listen for when we next hear this. That is the minor seventh. The minor seventh is an interval that carries weight and meaning in this. And it's frequent inclusion is kind of logical given all the jazz influences in West Side Story. And here it really it can depict yearning and love. It's also a more subtle interval to hear compared to the um, very in-your-face tritone. Just to bring us up to speed on what the seventh, you know, what does seven even mean? The seventh scale degree is typically the last note in a major scale before you get to the tonic. And we can just think of tonic as being home base. In C major, C is home base. It's stable. It wants to be there. This seventh scale degree is a half step below. It's the shortest step we have in, in our classical music, below the tonic or home base. We call it a leading tone because it really wants to resolve and get to that tonic, that half step above. Now, we get a minor seventh by lowering that note a half step. So instead of, say, a B, it's a B flat. And we're no longer just a half step away from home base, that C. It no longer wants to move up. So put together, we have this large interval. It's a large interval to sing. And it has this really yearning quality. And it's most clearly used in that song somewhere. The first words, there's a, is a minor seventh. It's showing in full color Tony's deep love and, and yearning for Maria. But this song is in Act 2. So where else do we hear this minor seventh predominantly maybe beforehand? We hear it very briefly in One Hand, One Heart in the introduction. There's some yearning. We also hear it a bit in Cool as well, both of which are in Act 1. So this one's kind of interesting because it's like he's developing this leitmotif in reverse, giving us glimpses of it before showing us what it really means in, in Somewhere. Now, the initial theme in Somewhere would not have been foreign to Bernstein. See if you recognize this piece. That's from the second movement of Beethoven's Piano Concerto Number no. 5, Emperor. The movement also has, I think, a similar tender quality. And Bernstein, he alters the last note, gives it more, the song, more momentum. But this is just one instance of, of many where Bernstein has borrowed from 
the classical world. Also, Sprach's Zarathustra, for instance, which you mentioned. Bernstein did, after all, say, a great modern composer can take the same old-fashioned notes that music has always used and use them in a fresh new way. And we're going to put some more examples of borrowed music on the show notes page at classicalbreakdown.org. But this light motif, the minor seven, it's a little more subtle, but I do have to say, if you think like, well, I don't really hear that, or am I going to catch that? It is subtle, but I don't think this is out of reach for, for anyone. The more you listen, and if you really want to understand it, the more you sing and sing these intervals and become familiar with them, the easier it becomes to to recognize them. Now, James, we learned in our Life of Bernstein episode that he was stretched thin. Bernstein was constantly juggling multiple projects, an intense travel schedule, intense performing schedule. How does a composer like Bernstein write something so extraordinary and complicated like this while, I mean, doing all of this stuff? Well, what you do is you end up sort of creating a kind of Rosetta Stone, sort of like, okay, well, this kind of music, musical motif represents this emotion. It's, it becomes a kind of code. And that's actually very common in operatic writing. And that goes all the way back to the very beginnings of opera, actually. The, the idea that you have not only light motifs in terms of explicit melodic material, but also just in terms of just styles that you draw on. Part of what makes this original is that what Bernstein was listening to and what he was drawing from, you know, pretty much every other Broadway composer was drawing on the traditions of Broadway and the traditions of show tunes and, and you know, maybe some folk music. And Bernstein was drawing on the entire history of opera, of symphonic music, uh, of folk music of different countries. And so the palette is so wide, uh, wider than perhaps any other Broadway musical I can, I can think of. And that's what makes it original that he can draw on, say, a Beethoven piano concerto, or in I Have a Love, he uses a motif from Wagner's Goethe Dämmerung, uh, which he publicly acknowledged, or Strauss' tone poem, or Stravinsky, or Mio because of the way he was listening. And also, like he did with, as we were saying about the minor seventh, the way he was, the way he listened even to an interval, the way he sort of like, okay, well, that's a blues note, but let's turn it into this soaring, yearning phrase that can imply wanting to go to a better place and but still feeling the pain and feeling the groundedness of, of where you are. And as Bernstein got so busy it was actually to his benefit that he had all this music in his head. As he said, sometimes that actually got in his way because when he was trying to compose something new, he he realized he was unconsciously borrowing from all these other uh, places. But in West Side Story, you don't have time to care. When you're doing a Broadway show, you just you just have to pump these things out. When you're writing a symphony, that's a different story. And, uh, and he did get a little bit of trouble for that later on. But when you're writing a musical, I think it was Stravinsky who said, Good composers borrow, great composers steal. And, um, yes. and um, I imagine there was also an expectation in, in Broadway, if you're seeing something, it would feel normal to see to hear a quote from 
something else by that same producer or, or composer. Oh yeah, absolutely. And uh, in in a way, it's actually encouraged. You know, it's sort of like you don't want it to sound too unfamiliar. I mean, as far as the producers were concerned, Bernstein didn't steal enough in terms of stealing from other Broadway shows. Mm. <laughs> that makes of, sense. And um, even though that would have been much easier to detect. When Bernstein sort of comes across the thing of like, oh, okay, so, so we have this dance in the gym and we've got Puerto Ricans and we've got self-styled Americans. You know, in his case, he drew upon his knowledge of the rhythms of of Puerto Rico and uh, of, of the of the music they're listening to even then in New York and uh, up in the barrios and you know and what what that what the dance forms were and he was very familiar with those and sort of contrast them with a deliberately conservative idea of what boys and girls were supposed to dance to <laughs> and it's a very funny scene and so he draws upon his knowledge there and when or he draws upon you know when he has a, a soaring love scene. He sort of draws upon, okay, well, where has this happened before? Oh, this has happened in, in Puccini, or this has happened in Rogers and Hammerstein, or is he, you know, he's sort of like, okay, this is what they did, so I can plug, I could write in that style for a little while. And so he reached into, you know, as we call it, bag of tricks. And he had one already, in a, and you can already see in uh, his previous musicals in Candide and On the Town, Wonderful Town, you know, ways in which he had his own code about what musical motifs equaled which emotion or which uh, action on stage. And he incorporated that in into this uh, musical as well. And so in this case, it helped that he waited until he was a sophisticated enough musician to be named conductor of the New York Philharmonic before writing a Broadway musical because he needed that breadth of, of musical knowledge in order to be able to meet the pressures of producing a Broadway musical where you might have something like, okay, by tomorrow morning, we need 60 more bars here. We need a complete, we need to completely rewrite this number. We need, you know, let's go, 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 go. You know, and you become like a factory, which is why Bernstein, even though he, all of his musicals were successful, at least up until that point, he wrote so few of them considering how, what a household name he is, because there, it requires a very demanding kind of mentality that he just, a, he didn't really have the energy for because he was a conductor, but also in a way was antithetical to what you do as a conductor or as a quote, quote unquote, serious composer when you sweat over every note and, um, and everything has to be the exact utterance with utter intentionality. And here there's no time for it. There's this quote of Bernstein, and it feels like it encapsulates all of this perfectly. He said, to achieve great things, two things are needed, a plan and not quite enough time. Exactly. So many things to look out for with West Side Story, the tritone leitmotif, the complexity of the plot and everything that's involved just to get things moving, the minor seventh, that leitmotif and its influence coming from jazz and blues and other Broadway, like you mentioned, too. Here in the end, what a composer needs, like Bernstein, to to write something like this and to having all of his wisdom and experience of performing for the last couple of decades sounds like it really, really all just kind of came together for him. Now, he wanted to be taken more seriously as a composer. He wanted to write the great American opera. Plenty of composers have written something where they think, well, you know what, this piece is just too popular. I don't like it being this popular overshadowing stuff. 
Did Bernstein have a similar thought that West Side was too big and he wanted something else instead? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, and what's interesting is that this applies to everybody, including Shakespeare himself, who did an adaptation of Romeo and Juliet. In fact, in his very next play, Midsummer Night's Dream, he did an, he did a scene that was a parody of Romeo and Juliet, uh, the Pyramids of the Thisbe scene nonetheless. Like, even he couldn't escape that. Even he couldn't escape 10 years later when he was writing things like Hamlet and King Lear saying, like, oh, the guy who wrote Romeo and Juliet. And this is, oh, and Prokofiev, oh, he's the guy who wrote the Romeo and Juliet ballet. And Tchaikovsky, oh, he wrote the Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> it's like, you cannot escape it. And Bernstein couldn't escape it either because part of what... Um, what is needed for this is not only a knowledge of all this music that we're talking about and in theater, and but also a knowledge of what it means to be an impetuous teenager. And you have to draw on that in order to infuse that. And Bernstein, that drama was, I mean, Bernstein had his own struggles in terms of his marriage and his identity on several levels, including just what what kind of musician was he? Um, and, and in 1957, all of that came to a head for him on both a professional and personal level. And so to have to be constantly reminded of that, of that most conflicted period in your life, and to have that be the thing that you're most known for, about six years into his tenure as the conductor of the New York Philharmonic, he finally took a sabbatical, and he wrote Chichester Psalms. Uh, he got a commission to write this beautiful piece um, for this uh, British choral society, and they actually explicitly added, "Oh, could you make the end? Could you make it a little West Side Story? Could you put a little West Side oh. Story in that?" And he he did, you know. And there's a little bit of West Side Story in the Cottage Symphony, and there's quite a bit of West Side Story in Mass. And so because that became part of his brand, and and he tried uh, the closest he came to doing something that I mean I. Th- that he thought would be the thing that was his ticket out of that was a was an opera called A Quiet Place, which he wrote in the early 80s, which was itself a, a, a sort of a sequel to an opera that he'd written in the early 50s called Trouble in Tahiti. And that's what, and he wanted to write the great American opera. And the reviews were were scathing, except for a couple that weren't. And it has grown to a following. And actually, uh, just a few years ago, there was a highly acclaimed production at New York City Opera, which was finally starting to and and now finally, you know, half century later, it's starting to get traction as being known as perhaps a piece that Bernstein wrote. And, and Mass, of course, is also getting tremendously popular. So, but Bernstein never lived to see that. And one of the sad things about Bernstein dying when he was seventy-two and not living is that the culture has caught up with him in so many ways. And now it's complete. You know, all the things that he was criticized for in terms of his eclecticism and uh, combining popular and classical elements and, and being relentlessly tonal, that's what classical composers do now. In his own day, the young generation kind of rolled his eyes at him. And now they're completely embracing what he was doing. They're completely, you know, and Bernstein, you can say all you want about how much he stole from other people, but his style is so recognizable that, you know, you can tell when a composer has has uh, has been influenced by him and he has had a tremendous influence. So he was like Mahler before his time and his time, I think, has come in, in, in many, many ways. And uh, and that's it's just sad that he never got to live to see that. So many artists facing this problem of a work eclipsing everything else. Shakespeare 500 years ago, Bernstein today. We'll do an update in 500 years and see if anything's changed. I remember the the moment I heard about Bernstein's death was when I was walking through 
a hotel lobby in mid-afternoon, and there was a, a bar that was had a TV on with the news. And I just caught the phrase as I was passing by, the composer of West Side Story was 72. And all I could think is that, A, how tragic is that and on so many levels, but B, one of the tragedies is that that phrase was exactly what Bernstein was trying to avoid for the last 30 years of his life. Yeah. And that would have killed him all over again to hear that. And it was it was so sad. But it's but really it's not sad at all because the work is a triumph and his career is a triumph. But but in terms of but no, you're not gonna overcome West Side Story. No. It's, well, now it's time to read your reviews from Apple Podcast. Uh, James, what do we have? This is from BBUVE. They gave us five stars, which I'm very happy about. And they said, thanks so much for making me understand better why I like what I like. Your explanations are wonderful, particularly for those of us with no formal music theory training. And your true love of music infuses every episode. Well, thank you so much, BBUVE, for your review. We're happy to hear it. And you can be like BBUVE and leave us a review in your podcast app, particularly Apple Podcasts. You can send episode ideas and comments to classicalbreakdown at weta.org and check out the show notes page at classicalbreakdown.org for more information on West Side Story. Thank you so much, James. It was my pleasure, John. Thanks. Thanks. 